0: Well, this morning in our text together, we will see four truths that should result in our growing love for Jesus and our enthusiasm for seeing others come to know him. Point number one I want you to see the new disciples' gratitude, humility, and enthusiastic evangelism. This woman is a brand new believer. Verse 28 tells us she left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Now stop there for a minute. We didn't spend any time talking about this last week because really I wanted to reserve it for this week. Talked about the intense animosity between Jews and Gentiles, specifically Jews and Samaritans, really Jews and half Jews, right? Jews that are half Jewish and half some other pagan nation. Uh, as the result of sinful intermarriage, we qualified this last time by saying that it's not sinful to have interracial marriage. It's not the idea. Many people over the years have grossly and really abusively misused this passage to prevent people of different races marrying each other, and, and that's, that's as sinful as anything, really. Uh, the point here is that they married outside the Lord prohibition in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. To marry outside of the Lord is to defame the Lord. It's to call that which is not of the Lord into the context of the Lord and so to bring a black eye to Him. And so animosity between Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Samaritans, we spent some time on last time, but we didn't talk about the social stigma that it would be to talk to a woman in public. And in her case, it was that much more of a stigma. It would have been unacceptable for any man to talk to a woman in public, much less a well respected rabbi, a well respected teacher. It would have been considered to have been a waste of his time because women were considered property at best and unable to comprehend anything theological, equally as sinful as the racism that I alluded to earlier. And so. As Jesus speaks to this woman, he really is condescending in, a, in an honest and righteous and gracious and, and really what ought to be normal way. Uh, but at the same time, there's this stigma that comes along with the fact that she is an adulteress. And so by doing that, he is showing himself to exhibit the kind of kindness that any Christian in any era ought to have, but she would not have experienced that in town in Sychar. That's not what she would have experienced. But it doesn't matter to her anymore. She leaves her water jar, and she goes into the town, and she starts talking to people. And she starts speaking to them with boldness and with confidence, regardless of the fact that they're probably very much looking down on her as they would have done any time they might have seen her. But she is speaking to them under compulsion, internal compulsion. Why? Because she's grateful. She's been given living water. And the person who has been given living water in a spiritual desert, knowing that she's surrounded by people who are also dying in that spiritual desert, she's going to want to share that living water with them, regardless of how awful they might have been to her. This is the evangelistic mindset of the new believer. The new disciple who's all of a sudden saying, My eyes are open. My ears are open. My heart is pumping for the first time. Spiritual truth is meaningful to me. It's like food. I can't seem to get enough. This is the great contrast between the true new convert and the false convert. Although, as you know from the parable of the soils, there is some excitement that comes with having uh, the ability to understand some things about the Word of God that one didn't understand before, even when he's not converted. And it takes a little time, sometimes it takes a lot of time, but eventually that shows itself to be a false conversion. Well, over time you would see whether or not a conversion is real, and in this case these are the signs of real conversion, gratitude, humility. She no longer cares how she might be treated when she goes into town because she's convinced these people need to receive this living water. So she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. See, that's humility, right? Think of it. The last time you confronted someone with their sin, you either saw humility or pride or some combo of the two. Probably same for you last time you were confronted with your sin. Hopefully, there's an increase of gratitude in the moment and budding really blossoming humility every time someone tells you something you need to hear about yourself so that you're not exercising such assessment of that that it has to be perfect you ever done that someone comes to you with something about your life and if they get one little drop or one stitch of something wrong you throw the whole matter out as if it's some sort of slanderous false accusation Far better to say, if I can find a kernel of truth in this, then I'm probably going to be grateful not only for this person, but the kindness that the Lord has shown to me by bringing this person to me, to love me with the wounds of a friend rather than the kisses of an enemy. Some people live their whole lives experiencing the kisses of the enemy and dismissing the wounds of a friend such that they go to their grave with absolutely no understanding of what this woman was experiencing in the moment. How amazing that God showed his kindness to this woman, and that change in her life showed itself so prevalently that she was willing to communicate it to others who very likely had no love for her at all. Can this be the Christ? She's asking Samaritans, remember, not Jews. So she's asking people in Sychar, in Samaria, whether or not what she's experiencing is real. It's real, and she's pretty convinced it's real. She knows she's no scholar, so she's seeking the interest of others, seeking the help of others, and the result was they went out of the town and were coming to him, so while he's still there at the well with his disciples, they arrive, the result of this woman's gratitude, her humility and her enthusiastic evangelism, if you go down with me to verse 39, is that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Is that how you respond when someone tells you what you did? Is it this kind of gratitude? Isn't it amazing that this woman gets launched from an adulterous representation a life that is lived in representation of what adultery is and immediately you know she is called to an account for that adultery and what happens god gives her living water and she changes and she's not only not pushing away those who are addressing her sin she's telling other people let me tell you how great it is that this man told me everything i ever did Isn't that how we all ought to respond? This is the way new believers respond because they know there's a sense in which there's not a lot of pressure. You know, they haven't been in the Lord for three years or 10 years or 20 years. So the pressure is off to have this appearance of being rather righteous in the eyes of everyone else. The brand new believer says, I'm brand new. It's okay if I look stupid. It's okay if people consider my sin. It's okay if people look at me and say, you know what? Your life was wretched because it was. In this great contrast, the opening of her eyes and her ears and her heart is so amazing to her. She wants people to see the difference. So she's asking good theological questions, really probably the only question she could come up with. You think he's real? You think this is the Christ, the one who's going to tell us all things? He's telling me everything I ever did, and that, at least, foundationally, was necessary and helpful to the samaritans who would hear her testimony and they'd be they'd be saved as a result of her evangelistic enthusiasm back in john 1 verse 40 you see a similar experience where we read one of the two who heard john speak and followed jesus was andrew simon peter's brother He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Andrew, in a Jewish culture who had grown up his entire life, hearing about the coming Christ, the one who would be the Savior of the world, and he's convinced we found him. Andrew takes his biological brother and introduces him to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Next thing you know, they're both walking with Jesus. The blind man in chapter 9 of John is called to an account. The religious leaders say to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. The blind man, who's no longer blind, says, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind. Now I see. And the one who has been made to see responds this way. He wants people to know about this person that gives him new life. He doesn't duck and cover. He's bold. He's brave. He's courageous. He's willing to introduce people to the Savior. So we've looked at the new disciples' gratitude, humility, and enthusiastic evangelism. Next, in this text, I want you to see the growing disciples' immaturity, restraint, and thoughtful service. So Look with me at verse 27. Just then, His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? They were saying it in their minds, but somehow they were able to exercise some restraint. Why? Because that's what a growing disciple does. He exercises restraint at least some of the time. The person who claims to be a disciple but has no restraint in his words. It's as if... The sins of the tongue just roll out of his mouth in a flood-like fashion. He's got no restraint. The Scripture tells us in the Proverbs, He who is wise restrains his lips. Take takes some time for the new convert to get to the place where he can keep his mouth shut and to do so for the right reasons. Right? Some people give themselves a lot of credit because they're willing to keep their mouth shut to stay out of trouble. That's not a bad thing to do, by the way, but it's not a spirit-filled motivation. The spirit-filled motivation is Christ's glory that I might be willing to give the benefit of the doubt rather than being that person who could be defined as never having a thought that he or she didn't articulate. You don't want to be that person who says everything you're ever thinking. You know you're not accountable to people around you for what you think. Do you know that? Yeah, because you can get that right with God before you open your mouth. But the trouble is, sometimes we don't do that. Seek forgiveness for what you do. And if there's a hard attitude behind it, confess that to someone who will disciple you and walk through that with you. But don't go around telling everybody every bad heart atti- attitude you had you know, this morning or yesterday or whatever. That's not productive. What is productive is to share those things with someone who knows the intimate nooks and crannies of your heart and is walking you through a progressive conformation to the person of Christ. But if you've sinned with your mouth, then confess it. Go back to every person you can think of that you've sinned against with your words and address that. That's what the growing disciple who is immature does he expresses restraint after he has acknowledged that he has blown it at least a time or two and he engages in thoughtful service now this is somewhat of a uh, a mixed bag of traits in the growing christian but we see them in these people in this text in the disciples by the way look with me quickly at colossians chapter one we'll just um, look at this just for a moment The end of the chapter, Colossians 1 and verse 28, Paul here expresses really what I consider to be the philosophy of ministry of Paul's life. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You see, that's what a shepherd does. That's what a shepherd does. He equips the church and he does so for the purpose of the maturing of the body but also obviously for the purpose of the maturing of each member of that body that's why we have membership you know who am i teaching teaching the members of the anchor bible church those who have said this is my church if there happen to be other people in the room praise god we hope that it spills over onto you but truly only for those who have said, This is my body. This is where I serve. This is where I am faithfully engaging in worshiping and serving and giving to Jesus Christ. I have a commitment. I have a command. Paul has a command here Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You can't do that. Paul couldn't do that with every believer in the world. You say, didn't Paul travel the world? Yeah. And while he was wherever he was, he taught those people and he would write letters back and forth. But I'm not Paul, nor are you, nor is any shepherd in our church. So I have a massive responsibility to those of you who have said, this is my church. And for those who have said, this is my church elsewhere, then there are men there who have that same massive responsibility. And how does this work itself out? Verse 29, for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's hard work. Ministry is hard work. Studying the Bible is hard work. Prayer is hard work. And it's a joy. Part of why it's a joy is how Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians that he's just elated with the effect that the Thessalonians are having in Macedonia and Achaia. All throughout the world, God is reaching people through the Thessalonians, who are maturing as a result of Paul's ministerial work in their lives. So this is not unusual that the disciples would display some immaturity. Verse 27 says in our text, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. Why? Because they were immature. They hadn't been believers very long, and they still had prejudicial thinking and sexist thinking. She's a woman. What good could it be for her to be having a conversation with him? What could she possibly learn? And that was the cultural mindset. They didn't say to her, what do you seek? What do you want? What could you possibly want from him? You can't get from him what he wants to give to people. He wants to give people spiritual knowledge. You don't have the ability to know that. You're a woman. How awful But that was their temptation, but they showed restraint. Praise God. Peter showed restraint. How unusual. Verse 31, go down to verse 31 in John 4. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. You see, this is their thoughtful service. It's immature, but it's thoughtful. Verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. That's their immaturity. I have food that you don't know about. Should they have known about it? I I would think so. I'd think so. Verse 8, go back to verse 8 for a minute. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So they had food, and they're asking, you know, has he eaten? Lord, you need to eat. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? We have food. Did anybody take anything to him? You know, he's one of those guys who just gets busy and works and forgets to eat. Has anybody taken anything to him? Well, the disciples often did not understand Jesus' use of figures of speech, the analogies that he used. Go back to chapter 2 for a moment. You'll remember this, chapter 2, verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, And you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. We're told that in the parables, he often uses parables because it's Christian code. So those who were not in Christ couldn't ever understand what he was talking about. And then he would explain the parable to believers privately. And in so doing, it was a a way of the sheep and the goats to be shown to be separate from one another. John 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So as Jesus spoke to the religious leaders regarding the temple, and here as he spoke to the religious leader regarding spiritual life, they didn't understand because they couldn't understand. But often, as I said, the disciples didn't understand what he was talking about when they probably should have. Why? Because they were immature. They were new believers. But he's speaking here about the bread of life, reminiscent of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where to the Israelites, Moses communicates, He humbled you. And why did He take us into the desert? Why did we experience hunger? By the way, it's not the worst thing in the world to be hungry. We as Americans know very little about that. But the Israelites learned from their hunger. It was God's design. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Of course, you know what passage I'm going to read next. Matthew 4, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Command these stones to become loaves of bread, but he answered, It is written, quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's very likely that Jesus was fasting in this moment that he sat down at the well with the Samaritan woman. Matthew 6, which hadn't taken place yet, the explanation of the disciples' prayer. Matthew 6, 16, comes right after the disciples' prayer. And Jesus says, and when you fast. This is what we call a supportive phrase. A phrase that modifies or uh, is subordinate to the main point in the sentence. The point is not to say, if you happen to fast, but when you fast. It's not a command, but it's a clear implication. It's an assumption that you're going to fast. If you're a Christian, you should fast. It should at least be an occasional practice in your life. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. This may be why, if he was fasting in this moment, that they didn't know. He chose not to look gloomy. He chose not to draw attention to himself in his fasting. Why? Because the hypocrites disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. I think I shared with you one time when I was right out of college, I... uh, was working for this company and and had some interaction with the owner. And uh, he was regularly happy to tell me that Wednesday was his day of fasting. So if we're going to have lunch together, it can't be on Wednesday. Or he would just have to watch me eat. And um, I didn't know what to think about that until I got to Matthew 6. And I thought, you know, probably better for him to just fast and not tell me. You You probably are sitting near someone who fasts on a regular basis, but you don't know it because they're living in obedience to Christ's command to not wrinkle up your face as if you're dying because you haven't eaten for six hours. By the way, you're not dying when you haven't eaten for six hours. But we think we are, and we say things like, I'm starving, you know, my kids will say that. And I'll say, well, you're not starving. Yeah, but Dad, you said you're starving. Okay, whatever. (laughs) I was such a good parent before I had kids. (laughs) <laughs> and the things that i was certain i would never say and never do and you know and don't realize i do sometimes and they they're quite helpful to me <laughs> <laughs> to point that out but when you fast you know isn't that heavy truly i say to you they have received the reward what's their reward it's the pity that they get from people when they have that grimace on their face. That's their reward. It's not much of a reward, but it sure feels like it in the moment. Man, I'm feeling good about myself because these people are feeling good about me. That kind of pride is, uh, is difficult to, uh, to kill. But verse 17, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. In other words, be presentable. Or may it may be that no one would have any idea that you're fasting. Verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And, of course, Jesus knew this. He knew this. No, you're right if you're thinking this. The text doesn't tell us that he's fasting, but there's a sense in which it does tell us he's fasting. Why? Because he's hungry. If you look at the true text, basic definition of fasting, it really means to go without food. So for some period of time, we don't know why, but it's very possible that he was fasting for the purpose of fasting, right? Why do you fast? What's the purpose in fasting? So that the hunger pains will remind you to pray. That section on fasting comes on the heels of that section on prayer. Fasting helps you remember. You ever wonder, why do people why would I fast? Why would I do that to myself? So you remember to pray. You say, I think I can remember to pray without fasting. Yeah, but not as well as if you do fast. It's a great practice. The Lord's given it to us. What a joy for us to engage in that kind of memory-producing activity. And to do so for God's glory. As Jesus may have been doing that, the disciples wouldn't have known. And part of it would have been their mitigated sensitivity to him. Certainly they were sensitive to him. They realized he hadn't eaten. They're saying, Rabbi, you need to eat. And he says to them, I have food you don't know about. We did it again. How did we miss this? There's a string of things over which the disciples are rebuked by Jesus because they didn't know what they should have known. Why? Because they were immature, because new converts are immature. This should help us as a church. It should help us realize that when someone comes to know Christ, maybe the worst thing we can do is to expect them to act like the adult that they think they are. But maybe the better thing to do is to treat them with respect, to really give them dignity and say to them, you know, I'll I'll spend six months with you going through a book. Why don't we do that together? Why don't we just pray together for the next six weeks, spending that time in discipleship? Why? Because new believers are immature, and these new believers that Jesus was pouring his life into were immature. They had grown. They were showing some restraint, and they were showing some thoughtful service, but they they needed much more growth. Well, the third thing I want you to see is the compassionate Savior's hunger to do His Father's will. Jesus' compulsion for His Father's pleasure. You and I can learn from this. What should motivate you? God's pleasure. You should want God to be pleased with every thought. Think of it this way, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. We are, Paul says, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And there's some argument with regard to what Paul means by that phrase, obedience of Christ. Is he talking about obedience to Christ or Christ's obedience? I take the position that he's talking about Christ's obedience. We're to take every thought captive, wait for it, to the gospel. Every thought captive to Christ's father obeying life, his sin blotting death, and his new life giving resurrection. Taking every thought captive. Can you imagine? I remember when I was in seminary, my my buddy Gordy and I would study together every Tuesday and Thursday, and we'd have these wonderful conversations. Some of them were really formative in my theological development back then. Gordy was just very practical and very real. And I remember saying to him, you know, that, Gordy, that's my desire. I just want to, I really want to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And, and he very honestly looked back and, and he said, man, that'd be hard. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know, I'm not doing well. Uh, but that's what we ought to want to do. Why? For the Father's pleasure. That's why Jesus lived. That's why he breathed. That's why he obeyed him. His great desire was the pleasure of the Father. Verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. It's a very genuine rebuke. Why? Why were they in this condition? Well, they were immature. But Jesus says it very clearly. He doesn't say something like, you know, you're doing okay, hang in there you know, I think maybe you should have understood this, but you don't know it. No, you don't know about it. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Talk about missing the point. Maybe somebody did bring him something to eat. He's got some snacks he didn't tell us about. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, we could stop here, couldn't we? We could stop here. And just all of us say, you know, let's just look each other in the eye and say, that's what we're going to do. We're going to make it our will to do the work of the Father. And then we're going to do this. We're going to hold each other accountable to run everything we do through that grid. Now, go back through this last week and ask this question, does everything you did this last week fit that grid? Does it all fit into that? Can you say that before I did anything and everything I did, I asked this question, is this the Father's work? Every step you took, every conversation you engaged in, every line in that conversation. Well, well, no, we've all failed in that way in the last week for sure. But what a great start today to be able to, together collectively say that's what we're going to do though you know let's commit to that doing the father's work it's my food yeah i have physical food and i i need that for sure but the far greater food my food that which satiates me that which satisfies my hunger is to do the work of my Father. And then he explains it. That's great. Look at this, verse 35. Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. What does that mean? The wheat is ripe, it's ready, it's blossomed. It's ready to be harvested. What's he talking about? He's speaking symbolically of the fact that there are people around you who are ready to repent and believe in the gospel. It's amazing what unfolds in the remainder of this text. Already, The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. He gives that four months timeline because that was the timeline in that agrarian society where everybody knew about how long it took for the wheat to be readied for harvest. Isn't that how it works? Don't you know that this is how it works spiritually? Don't you know that there are those who have gone before you, those who have gone before you engaged in the labor? And having engaged in the labor, they've paved the way for you to experience in the wages of that labor, the fruit of that labor. Why? So that you can rejoice with the sower. You know, being in the ministry is a funny thing. I mean, I, for me, it's just, it's just amazing. I mean, it's just, I can't fathom the possibility of not being in pastoral ministry. And part of that is because I'm convinced that's God's design for my life. But another part of it is that it is filled with absolute, immense, immeasurable joy. It's really astounding. It's beyond my ability to, to explain it to anyone. And I know a lot of men in the ministry who would not describe it this way. And I remember years ago, I was listening to a sermon, many, probably 30 years ago, and I remember the pastor of the church that I was in at the time talking about the animosity that builds between pastors. I thought, well, that's, that can't be right. That can't be true. Let me tell you, it's true. It's true. And a big part of it I believe is that pastors are frustrated. Uh, they they attempt to go down some path, and maybe it's a good path, but for whatever reason, they build bitterness toward people along the way, and pretty soon they start building bitterness toward other pastors who seem to be doing well in the ministry. I'll just be real candid with you. I don't have a lot of real loyal, close friends in the ministry, and the ones I do have, it's really obvious. And I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, but I do spend a lot of time thinking about and being grateful for the men in the ministry that bring me so much joy. I received an email this morning from my dear friend Jeff Kirkland in St. Louis, Missouri. He said, Todd, preach the word. I'm so thankful for you and your faithfulness. See, Jeff's got no insecurities about what's happening in our church versus what's happening. We started at the same time. They started, we started in September. They started the next January. We both came out of grace advance you know we visited there in in the summer and it was a joy to see what the lord's doing and i'm just thrilled for him and he's just thrilled for me but this is often very unusual and you read this i sent you to reap that for which you did not labor that could often result in some animosity well i deserve the credit For those people coming to know Christ, because I'm the one that did the labor. But what does Jesus say about this? The sower and the reaper are to rejoice together. You know, some of you have come to know Christ under the direct ministry of another shepherd in our church. What do you think that does for me? Oh, I wish I was the one to have been there. No. How could I? How how is that possible? But it happens. Jesus is saying we rejoice together. Why? Because our food is to do the work of the Father. The work of the Father is evangelism. Now, let me qualify that very carefully, lest you think you're not faithful in evangelism, because maybe you are, maybe you aren't. But if you're not out there, you know, yelling at people through a bullhorn, that doesn't mean you're not faithful in evangelism. But interestingly... A lot of people who do that think you're not if you don't. What is evangelism? Discipleship. You disciple people and prepare them for sharing the gospel. It's what Jesus was doing with the disciples. And what is he saying to them now? Open your eyes. Lift up your eyes. The field is white. The harvest is there. Let's take it. Let's go and let's minister to people. And the reality is, this is one of, in my mind, one of the most amazing evangelistic texts in the Bible because it speaks of these many Samaritans. We'll get to that point in a minute. These many Samaritans that turn to Christ. Samaritans who hated Jews and were hated by Jews and they turn to a Jew. And they receive the living water. Oh, and they do so as a result of the testimony of an adulteress. Amazing. Amazing. In chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Look with me now at verse 40. I know we skipped verse 39. We'll pick that up in a moment. So, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. This is a compassionate Savior. He doesn't swing into town, say a few words, and off he goes. They asked him to stay, and he stayed for two days out of compassion. They needed him. And he needed to fulfill his Father's will. You see that same compassion from that passage I read to you in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It's compassion. You and I can learn from that. Matthew 11, verse 28 Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's speaking to legalists. He's speaking to those who've been caught up in Phariseeism. And he says to them, throw that off. Why do you do that to yourself? Why do you dishonor my name by adding a drop of water to the ocean and assuming and really proclaiming that the ocean wasn't complete without your drop of water? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's why Jesus wants you to come to him, because he's gentle and he's lowly in heart. See, when you become gentle and you become lowly in heart, you long for people to come to you to talk about Christ. You want to share the low position that you have. You want to communicate gentleness because it was that gentleness that drew you to Christ. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Christ accomplished all that was necessary for the sins of sinners to be blotted out for eternity. And we wouldn't say that those sins never happened. We would say it is as if those sins never happened, because that's what a blotting out does. They're not erased. They're blotted out. They're covered over. And so we are treated as if we never committed them. This is the gentleness, this is the kindness of Christ to be willing to take that sin on himself and receive the full wrath. And as we sang before we got into the word together, the sins of those for whom Christ died are taken not in part, but in whole. That's the gentle, lowly Christ who says, come unto me, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The legalistic load is heavy the one that has to perform, the one that has to prove to others that we are doing well. Now, you know you're sitting in a room with sinners because the people in the room are breathing, and they know that about you. One of the most beneficial things you and I can do is to look closely at James 5 and confess our sins one to another, to be honest about what we already really know about each other. Maybe take it a step further and explain some of it in such a way that it makes it easier for us to interact together. We can actually help each other, pray for each other. And how do you do that? Because your confidence is in the one who satiates your hunger to do his will. You find your confidence in him. And therefore, you're willing to do his will because you want to please him. It's not ultimately about pleasing others by your performance by your appearance well four, the new disciples dependence upon the Savior and his word so number four the new disciples dependence upon the Savior and his word verse 39 many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony he told me all that I ever did So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. Many more believed because of his word. Now think of it this way. It's not only true that the new disciple needs Jesus and his word. The unbeliever needs Jesus and his word. Now hear me, especially the false convert who's been flooded with God's word needs God's word. So it's the word that brought the new disciple to the place of discipleship. It was the evangelistic expression of the word that made the unconverted person converted, the unbeliever a believer The one who was not in Christ who is now in Christ. See, this is really a test. This text is a test. It's a test as to whether or not a person is an unbeliever, unaware of the word. If if that's who he is, if he's an unbeliever, unaware of the word, a new disciple, or a false convert who's heard the word incessantly, he needs to hear the word of God. Listen to this from James 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The context for this is the proclamation of the word of God. And sometimes anger is displayed in something that doesn't necessarily look like anger. But many times people check out when the word of God begins to be proclaimed, and it's an angry disposition even though it doesn't feel like a rage. It's like, oh, I've heard all this before. Verse 20, uh, verse uh, 21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. It's reminiscent of Romans 10, isn't it? The one who receives the word of God with a non-angry disposition has checked his heart. He's acknowledged that there's filthiness and rampant wickedness in his heart, and he chooses to put that away in obedience to James here and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Listen, too often the false convert receives the word of God in a very superficial way and says, yep, I got that, yep, I know that, yep, I've been doing that. Check, 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 what's for lunch? What he ought to be doing is examining his heart, putting away filthiness, putting away rampant wickedness and receiving with meekness the implanted word. And then you know this well, verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, Forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. It's bankruptcy. Read it again, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. He may as well not have it. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He gets very practical here and says this is what real ministry, real religion looks like. It's to minister to the defenseless, those who need hope and can't provide it themselves. And it's obvious they can't provide it, but also to keep oneself unstained from the world. That encompasses a whole lot of stuff that in our culture is so easy to justify. First Peter 1 Peter 1:22, same concept. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. "...since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God." See, that's what the Samaritans needed. They needed Jesus, and they needed His word. The new disciple has a dependence upon the Savior and a dependence upon His word. Peter goes on to say, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Chapter 2, verse 1, still in First Peter. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. See that? What is the blockage that's preventing spiritual growth? It's often one of these things, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy. You know, that subtle but consistent flow of complaints. It's a wake-up call. You know, maybe you're that nice person who just kind of moans and groans, well, I don't know, probably tomorrow, probably sun's going to come, it's going to be hot again, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe you're the one who just blasts people, you know, you know, so obvious, the complaining, or maybe it's somewhere in between. But that blocks any kind of spiritual growth that's going to happen from the Word. That's why Peter is very clear about to put it away. And then verse 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. He's not speaking necessarily to new believers here. He's saying drink from the Word of God like a baby drinks pure milk, but don't let there be obstructions in the way. What obstruction might be in your way right now? is it some conflict is it some unresolved issue from you know with someone in this room or someone not in this room do this if indeed you have tasted the lord that the lord is good Uh, let me read verse two again first peter 2 2 like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation right like the samaritans need spiritual growth they needed that two days with jesus they knew they needed some time with him He providentially gave them two full days. Peter here says that by it, by the pure spiritual milk of the word, you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I mentioned it earlier, but Romans 10, I have to mention Romans 10 quickly. Verse 15, how are they to preach unless they are sent? Those who would preach the word of God, those who have beautiful feet, the disciples had beautiful feet. The Samaritan woman had beautiful feet. She's given beautiful feet to all these other Samaritans, and now they want to be with Jesus because they have a dependence upon Him. They have a dependence upon His Word. They need the Word. You need the Word. Verse 16 in Romans 10, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. There needs to be time in the word. The Samaritans needed that time with the person Jesus as he gave them his word, text tells us. You don't have that physical opportunity with him, but you do know this. John 1.14 says, "...and the word became flesh... And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You do have the Son of God in his word. He is the word who became flesh, and he is still the word, and you have his word. You have all that is necessary in his word. You need time in his word, as the Samaritans needed time in his word with him. And you get the same thing when you spend time in his word, but you also need the faithful proclamation of his word. Verse 42 in our text, they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. This might seem like an insult. It's the exact opposite. It's a compliment. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's a confirmation that what she had said was true. You were right. This is the Christ, this is the Messiah. We no longer are leaning on or depending upon or speculating about your testimony. We've been with him. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior of the world that we were waiting for. This phrase, Savior of the world, is used only one other time in Scripture. It's in 1 John 4, 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, we're not universalists. The universalist says, Savior of the world, he's going to save everybody. That's not what the phrase means, obviously, because not everybody gets saved. Back in chapter 1 of John, uh, chapter 1, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Does Jesus take away the sin of every single person in the world? The answer is no. If he did, then every single person in the world would be justified and would therefore experience eternal life. The Savior of the world is spoken of in Revelation 5-9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 1 Timothy 4.10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So he is the Savior of the world in that he is the only Savior, and he is in the world. The world knows him as the Savior, but he is particularly the Savior of all those who believe, just as the Samaritans believed. And it's truly a privilege for you and me to know him, isn't it? To worship him, to exalt him, to trust him to obey Him, to remove the stains and the blemishes and the complaining and all those things that are a blockage against our spiritual growth, to cry out to Him, to honor Him, to love Him, that we would grow in our dependence upon Him and that we would therefore be enabled to see others come to know Him. This is exactly what happened with that sinful Samaritan woman she threw off her pride and she went and told people here's a man who confronted me over my sin he loved me enough to tell me the truth about me i think he's the savior of the world and it was confirmed he is the savior of the world and if he has saved you you've been given living water living water that you certainly desire to quench the thirst of so many other unbelievers with who need to know this Savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time in your word. We thank you for the Savior of the world, your Son. Lord, help us to be grateful, to be humble, to be enthusiastic evangelists. Help us to acknowledge our immaturity to be grateful where you've given us restraint and thoughtful service. Help us to find compassion in our hearts, hungering for the completion of your will. And help us to grow in our dependence upon Jesus and his word, that we might see others come to know him and to exalt him as the Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.